Call for Action presents Of Consuming Interest, a public service show that discusses scams, deceptive offers, and other consumer concerns. Here's the director of WJLA 7 Call for Action and your host, Shirley Rooker. Were you concerned this past winter when we've had such cold days? Temperatures that were down in the 20s and some days never got above freezing. And then we're sitting here watching what was happening in Texas who had uh, wind turbines freezing from cold weather. And of course, we all were reflecting back to what happened in California with rolling blackouts, uh, loss of electricity, many, many, many millions of homeowners without electricity. And it made you think, I'm lucky to be in a city that right now we have plenty of electricity or we seem to. Well, I'm gonna talk about this. There's a very consumer issue. This is not a political issue in, in some ways, it's a consumer issue. And all of us as consumers need to be concerned about the impact of lack of electricity and has on our life. Uh, my guest today is Nicholas Loris. Uh, Nick is the deputy director of the Thomas A. Rowe Institute for Economic Policy Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Nick, welcome to Of Consuming Interest. Thank you for having me. Now, this is a fascinating subject and you've written a good bit on this. I know this is your area of expertise. Let's go back to what recently happened in Texas. Um, and also the fact that some of these poor residents in Texas are gonna get huge electric bills from what I understand. Um, and I don't know, maybe the state is moving to ease those, but there was potentially tens of thousands of dollars uh, consumers going to have to pay for electricity. So tell us, give us a brief overview of what happened in Texas and how likely is that, maybe you can't even tell, to happen in Washington, D.C.? Yeah, what happened in Texas is a really a, a matter of uh, supply and demand as a result of a, a real extreme storm that Texas uh doesn't frequently see. Uh, it was a super rare circumstance where it was effectively about three storms in a period of a week uh, with uh, sustained cold snaps, ice, and snow. Uh, and as a result, uh, there was huge pressures on the electric grid from supply and demand. Uh, obviously, when uh, the cold increases that much, people want to light and heat their homes. Uh, and therefore, that's going to significantly increase the demand for uh, electricity uh, as well as home heat. And 40% of uh, the residents in Texas use natural gas directly for home heat. So on the demand side, you saw a significant increase. And then on the supply side, you saw a lot of different challenges in terms of demand because there were fuel outages, because natural gas wellheads had froze, um, pipes had froze, uh, there was cooling water from a nuclear power plant that froze, uh, wind turbines froze. You know, the, the Texas is not typically uh, equipped to weatherize their electricity because they're not used to having such prolonged cold snaps like this. And, and even dealing with the ice and snow on the roads was a challenge for the electric grid because when these outages were happening, it was very difficult to get the teams out to de-ice the pipes and the natural gas infrastructure uh, because they don't have a, a lot of salt and road equipment to actually clear the road. So even that presented a challenge in Texas. And as a result, unfortunately, you saw a lot of prolonged outages uh, for days on end where, where people really struggled. And unfortunately, we saw you know loss of life in, in a few circumstances. 
Yeah, it, it really has been a tragic situation for the people in Texas. Um, what is the source of most of our electricity here in Washington, and is that being threatened? Yeah, that you know, we we have coal, we have natural gas, and um, you know, obviously increasing renewables. And a lot of states are making efforts to increase the supply of renewable generation. You, you, the District of Columbia uh, is one of uh, several areas. Uh, I believe it, it's upwards of uh, 37 states, I want to say now, have renewable electricity standards that mandate that a certain percentage of their electricity come from renewable sources. And so that, that increases as a percentage every year. Uh, the good news is, you know, Washington, D.C., the, the, the temperature can be pretty moderate, although that, that's what they said in Texas. Uh, you know, and different states and different regions have different uh, incentives to weatherize their infrastructure. Um, I don't know uh, for certain how D.C. treats that in terms of how much their uh, system is weatherized uh, to, present, per, to prevent uh, from any extreme weather events. But, you know, the good news is we are, you know, connected to a regional grid. Uh, in that respect, uh, that helps prevent uh, from you know, some of the more extreme scenarios that we may have seen in Texas. Uh, but no matter what the market structure is of an, uh, an electricity grid, uh, if you have such an unplanned and severe weather event, that can certainly put strain on that infrastructure. We even saw that in the Northeast where coal piles had frozen, and that was supposed to be the reserve capacity for generation. Uh, and they couldn't access the coal for the power plant because the, the piles were simply too frozen uh, to, to get to the actual power plant. Boy, that was, it really has been quite an event with the cold. Um, back to the, the energy sources, you talk about renewables, you're talking about such things as wind and solar power, right? Is that what you're referring to? Yeah, that's right. You, you know, the, the large majority of our energy needs, especially our electricity needs, are met by coal, natural gas, and, and nuclear. Uh, coal and natural gas, both fossil fuels, provide a little over 60% uh, of our electricity needs. And uh, nuclear is about 19%. Uh, hydro is a, another uh, 7 to 8%. And then the rest is uh, wind and solar, uh, with a little bit of oil, but not all that much. OK, but in Texas, Texas had a rather higher percentage of renewable energy supplying their electricity. Is that true? Or am I mistaken on that? No, that's correct. You know, in any given time, uh, you know, Texas, especially because of wind, uh, you know, could have upwards of 40% of its electricity generation met by uh, wind power alone. And uh, you, what you've seen because of Texas's unique uh, electricity market structure is that there's been a, a real increase in renewable development there uh, for uh, a host of reasons. One, that competitive market incentivizes the investment in newer technologies. And one benefit of renewables is that the cost of the technology has come down significantly over the past 12 years. Um, regionally, it's a very good place, uh, especially West Texas, for wind power. Uh, if, if Texas were a country, it'd be the fifth largest wind producing country in the world. Uh, so geographically, it makes sense. And then we also have policies that subsidize 
the production and use of renewable power. Uh, the wind production tax credit, most specifically, has been a huge boon to the state of Texas and the growth of renewables uh, in the state. Yeah, well, let's on that note, let's just take a brief pause here. Uh, let our listeners know they're tuned into of consuming interest. I'm Shirley Rooker. My guest is Nicholas Loris. He's the deputy director of the Thomas A. Rowe Institute for Economic Policy Studies at the Heritage Foundation. And we're talking about some of the rather catastrophic incidents that have happened in terms of loss of electricity or of power to homes and uh, businesses in several states. California was one that we saw with rolling blackouts and that was caused by what there, uh, Nick? That was partly due to the loss of the solar energy due to the smoke from the fires. Is that correct? I, I don't really remember the result of it, the, the cause of it. Yeah, that, that was partly the case. The other case was you know, the transmission lines. Uh, some of the transmission lines are old and in need of upgrade. And so when they have significant wind, uh, you know, these power lines can spark and blow over and result in deadly wildfires that we've seen in recent years in California. And transmission lines can be the, the generating cause of those wildfires. And so if conditions are significantly windy uh, in California, which is, you know, often the case certain times of years, they may have to, you know, instigate these rolling blackouts to ensure that you know, the sparks aren't generated from those transmission lines. And this has you know, been a long noticed problem in California uh, where the, the incentive structure of their electricity grid has not been to resolve these issues. And they, they also kind of have an alphabet soup of agencies uh, overseeing and controlling uh, the grid and issues in California with no clear ownership. And so it presents a lot of challenges to upgrade their grid. Uh, and therefore, when you have you know, problems uh, with some of the renewable sources, and you've also seen a decommissioning of power plants, uh, of conventional power plants in California to meet the increasing renewable electricity targets, you're also taking some of that, uh, what we call baseload power that comes from coal and natural gas and nuclear offline. One of the concerns that I have is the impact on consumers, not only in our safety and comfort, but also in the costs. Now, are we seeing, and, and I've been reading that in Texas, consumers were facing huge, huge electric bills. Um, tell us the story about the cost to consumers, because this program really is called Of Consuming Interest, and that's what we're interested in. Yeah, for, for Texas, uh, one of the problems that the people that you saw have electric bills of uh, upwards of $17,000 in, uh, for instance, uh, is because they used a, uh, an app or a service called Gritty, which ties their electric bill to the wholesale price of power. Uh, and when these events happened in Texas, the wholesale price of power went through the roof. Uh, and typically these consumers enjoyed below market rates for electricity. And in Texas, I should back up a little bit, they, their market is a little different in that you have a lot of options to choose from for how you uh, get and pay 
for your electricity. Uh, it, it's almost like shopping for a place to stay on Airbnb. There's a, a ton of options out there where you can enter into fixed contract rates or variable rates. You can choose 100% renewables, uh, all sorts of different things. And so some of these customers chose to tie their price to the wholesale price of electricity. And in this instance, it, it, it came back to bite them where there were thousands of dollars of, of electric bills. I think what you'll see is some sort of relief, both potentially from the federal government. You know, this is uh, effectively why we have um, federal disaster relief, but also from the state legislature to, to insulate some of the costs and at least at the very least spread them out. But you also don't want to create a moral hazard problem where if people are simply uh, you know, made whole for the choices that they make, are they going to make those choices again? So we need to incentivize good behavior and clear choices to ensure that some. Okay, let me, let me put this um, in another way. We like as consumers, we don't necessarily have a choice in what's being offered to us because it's going to it's often mandated by government and by the policies and and while I, I'm not here to discuss policies I'm I'm concerned about the impact on the consumer so you're saying that some of the consumers in Texas may receive relief because they had chosen a system of getting their their power their electricity that benefited them generally, but once it was an emergency, it really came back to bite them. Exactly. What do you see as some of the answers to the issues that we've seen both in California and Texas, and maybe they can't even be discussed in the same paragraph, I don't know, but, <laughs> but what, do you, what do you see? Um, Nick, you're, you're an expert in this energy. You look at it, you study it, you write extensively about it, you testify on the Hill. What do you see the road, you see the road that we're going down now and we're moving towards more and more green energy and yet we recognize that there's a lot of vulnerability in that green energy and we've seen that demonstrated by frozen turbines and, and solar power that didn't work to, to meet the needs of consumers. So where do you see us going? How do we meet our desires to protect the environment and at the same time protect our citizens? Yeah, it's a, a great question, and, and that's part of my concern about energy policy generally is that when the government intervenes with mandates and subsidies and, and stringent regulations that don't provide environmental benefit, it's taxpayers and consumers that are left to pick up the tab. And fortunately, we've seen a lot of investment in new generation, particularly natural gas because of the shale revolution in the United States, and that's lowered people's electricity costs and lowered people's home heating costs and, that, and, that, and provided a number of environmental benefits as it's displaced coal uh, throughout the country. Uh, and that's great. That's what we want to see is the market at work. Uh, on the converse, when you have these government distortions in the marketplace, it's going to cost both taxpayers and consumers in the form of higher electricity bills. And it's important to note because electricity and energy is a critical component of everything we make and do, uh, you know, you're not just paying higher electricity bills, you're not just paying higher prices at the pump, but, you know, higher prices at the grocery store and going out to eat and for, you know, clothes and education and all that. So it's important to get the, the policy critically right. I think with a place like Texas, with a, a, has a strong market foundation, we need to fully understand what went wrong 
uh, and make sure that there are the right uh, types of incentives and choices if it makes sense to weatherize some of this infrastructure so it, so it doesn't happen again. Uh, you know, we're dealing in a place like Texas with a very low probability but high cost event. In, yeah, exactly, right. In, Let, in let's just take a brief pause on that note here to let our listeners know they're tuned in to Of Consuming Interest. I'm Shirley Rooker. My guest is Nicholas Loris. Uh, he, he is the Deputy Director of the Thomas A. Rowe Institute for Economic Policy Studies at the Heritage Foundation. And we're talking about some of the uh, things that have happened recently to our energy supply. And uh, do you see us now, we're, we're seeing the government is, incur is going to be converting their fleet of cars to green, uh, which are going to be using some of the natural energy, they're gonna be do, using different sources of energy. What about the impact that that will have? And I know that's down the road, but as they make that conversion, are we gonna see more and more demand on our electric system? And how are we going to meet that? I mean, this, you know, as I said, we sit here in these, this weather that has been so cold and we're comfortable and warm, great others are not. And that's, that's a big issue, I think, as far as, as the, our listeners are concerned. Um, so how do, we, how do we bridge the gap between wanting to do good and do well? Great question. And this has been a big uh, proposal by the Biden administration to increase the uh, electric vehicle fleet uh, with 500,000 charging stations across the United States. And you're exactly right. That's going to put an increased demand on the electricity generation system. And we need to think about two things. Uh, you know, one, again, what's that cost going to be cons to consumers uh, as it puts upward pressure on prices? Uh, but also we need to think through the, the life cycle uh, pollution costs of alternative sources of energy. Uh, and that's not to... Um, dismiss electric vehicles by any means, but we, we're still talking about mining uh, the necessary minerals to make uh, batteries. Uh, if you're still plugging into a, via, uh, an, a grid that uses coal and natural gas for 60% of its generation, there's still CO2 emissions, and you're just uh, you're just es essentially moving it from the, the pipe of the, the the tailpipe of the car to the the power plant, uh, and so you need to think through all these. Uh, emissions and pollution costs for incentivizing the uh, adoption of electric vehicles, uh, as well as the cost to taxpayers. You know, what we've seen in the U.S. is a $7,500 tax credit to buy electric vehicles that has largely uh, come at the expense of middle, middle America uh, to benefit the wealthiest Americans, largely in California. Uh, it's, it's mostly families and individuals with incomes above $100,000 per year and uh, half of them living in California that have taken advantage of this tax credit and it, and it comes at the expense of the, the rest of the tax base. So we need to think through these policies both as taxpayers and consumers because consumers could be faced with higher electricity bills, uh, forced higher prices and sticker prices of vehicles as a result of um, fuel economy mandates to incentivize the use of electric vehicles. Uh, as well as the cost to taxpayers. Yeah, I mean, I um, I have 
I'm, I have reservations only from this consumer standpoint and, and what's going to happen to our supply and the demand. You know, we've seen in the past so many experiments with solar energy and things like that. We've seen companies getting huge grants from the government and then going bankrupt. We've seen what I would consider to be a tremendous waste of money uh, that's gone on. Well, of course, that's the government for you. Sorry about that, people. Um, but at any rate, I think it concerns me that we that we we don't seem to have an overarching view of what this ought to be. That we're looking at it in bits and pieces. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, it is, especially because you know members of typically have their own parochial interests, depending on what their state's electricity makeup is, what they want to push moving forward, and. Also, policymakers kind of thinking that they're uh, Nostradamus and can predict what the the future looks like for the future of energy. And, and generally speaking, that doesn't work out too well for the consumer. It results in in wasted taxpayer dollars, as you mentioned. Uh, and it's not just the the government grants and loan guarantees and and things like that that have failed, but it's also results in a lot of cronyism and market distortion in energy markets and the government picking winners and losers. Uh, and the reality is, you know, the demand for electricity and for transportation fuels, these are huge multi-trillion dollar markets worldwide. Energy technology or source that can compete in that market is going to be rewarded handsomely from the profit motive that already exists out there. So we don't need the government uh, using tax policy and regulations and subsidies to incentivize the production of one over another, we just need to allow the market to work. And that's not the case in Washington a lot of the times because, again, members have their own interests in, in what they think should be the vision for our energy future when uh, the, the planning part of that process tends to not work out too well for the consumer. Do you have an electric car? I don't want to put you on the spot, but I am. I do not. Uh, and that's not to say I, I wouldn't buy one. Um, but, you know, my family's up in Pennsylvania, uh, in you know, Bucks County, PA, and it's a, a little too far uh, in some instances to... For you to get to. <laughs> yes, yeah, I yeah, understand. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, there is there are some limitations on what you can do with electric vehicles. I guess mm -hmm. hybrids are a little bit uh, more user-friendly mm -hmm. in that sense. But I do have friends who have electric cars and they've seemed to love them. Yeah, me too. Um, but I think they also have a, a uh, other fueled vehicle. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. That, which yeah. as a backup, I think mm -hmm. that that is often the case. And as you said, that benefits the wealthy, not the people who are out there driving that vehicle to work every day and depending on that job to make a make a living and and in the environment we've had recently just barely scraping by sometimes. So at any rate, it's an interesting subject, uh, Nick. Thank you for bringing so much knowledge to us and giving us some insight into first off what's been going on. And, and secondly, some of the things that may be down the road and hopefully some of the, the good things that will come out of our looking at the environment and us wanting to make things better. I think we all do. Gosh, I used to, re I started recycling stuff and taking newspapers to recycling centers long before it became the thing to do because I thought it was the right thing to do. And, um, you know, we have to make sure that what we're doing are policies that are going to benefit consumers. And, and you've helped us in, in, 
and some insight here, Nick. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, you've been listening to Of Consuming Interest. My guest has been Nicholas Loris, who is the Deputy Director of the Thomas A. Rowe Institute for Economic Policy Studies with the Heritage Foundation. I'm Shirley Rooker. You can reach me at Shirley at callforaction.org. And we thank you for being with us. So please give us a give us an e send us an email, tell us what you think, and let us know what you'd like to hear about in terms of consumer issues and what's coming down the road. This is Shirley Rooker. Thank you for joining us. Of Consuming Interest is a public service program presented by WJLA7 Call for Action, hosted by Shirley Rooker. Call for Action is an international nonprofit network of hotlines which offer free and confidential assistance. If you have a complaint, contact Call for Action at 301-652-HELP. That's 301-652-HELP. To be your best every day, you need proven quality sleep every night. Science proves your best sleep is vital to your mental, emotional, and physical health. And that's where the sleep number bed comes in. And let me tell you, ever since I've had it, my sleep IQ score is just going higher and higher. And did you know 8 out of 10 couples say that one of them sleeps too hot or too cold? Science tells us regulating your sleep temperature leads to higher quality sleep. For many couples, temperature struggles are a real challenge. So here are some tips to help you both sleep just right. Look for beds designed with temperature benefits such as the new Sleep Number Climate 360 Smart Bed that actively warms and cools each side so you both sleep blissfully comfortable. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number 360 Special Edition Smart Bed. Plus, special financing for a limited time. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com slash podcast one. Sleep Number, the official sleep and wellness partner of the National Football League. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. See sleepnumber.com for details.